Good morning, good morning. It's a great joy of mine to be here this morning and to share with you God's Word. Uh, I love your leaders and pastors. I've, I've just been made a better person because of their life and their story. And especially thankful to Curtis for giving me a chance to hang out with you this morning and, and share with you from Psalm 24. Just a little bit about me. My wife Stacy's here and now we, uh, we serve at Sugar Creek as Tom said and we get to have a little girl by the name of Avery, who is one year old and like a month, I think, this week. And it's just so great to see God, um, just to see the love of God through her life. And this week has been amazing uh, because I've somehow convinced her to say, Dada, when I ask her the question, who is your favorite? And so I'm like on cloud nine. Of course, she's running to mama, but she's saying Dada, which I'm good with. I'll take that for now. Uh, and so we're excited to be here. I, uh, I grew up in South India. My parents were both pastors, and I don't know if there's any PKs, pastors' kids in here. It just simply means you were in church all of the time. When your friends were going on vacation and retreats, you went to church and church again. And, and those were four-hour-long services, so it's a long time uh, to be in church. But I'm thankful for that now, maybe not so much then. Uh, and we moved to this side of the world in the mid-'90s when my, par- my parents and my family moved to the States, and we stepped out to Chicago. Chicago, Oklahoma, and then somehow found ourselves in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Has anybody heard of Chattanooga, Tennessee? All right. Hey, this is pretty cool. I couldn't even say it for the first like four years I was there, uh, but it was a great season of my life. And, and one thing I remember about that season of my life is fighting with these two questions. And number one, that question was, how do I get in with my friends? All right. And the second question was, how do I get in with God? It was these two questions that drove me. How do I fit in? Because when you're a teenager and you're in a new country speaking a new language, you don't really have a lot of common things with your friends that you're trying to make. I mean, you didn't grow up with the same cultural icons or music or jokes. And they could barely understand what I was saying. And, uh, and so I'm like trying to do everything I can to get in with them. I remember one time my friends had gotten this really awesome haircuts, like these short sides and cool tops. And, and I had already gotten my haircut for the month in my family because we were like a ration. We were like one of four. And so you can only get one haircut in like six weeks or a month. And I'm thinking, how do I keep up with my friends? So I had seen my brother give himself a haircut once. And somehow that built faith and confidence in me that I could give myself a haircut. So I jumped in the bathroom and started trimming my sides and felt pretty good. I mean, I was growing in my confidence, and I got to the top, and it was a little bit harder on the top because you can't really see, and you're trying to dust it off. You know, has anybody given themselves? Maybe not. I might be the only one that has ever given myself a haircut. But, you know, I just keep going in and got in the shower and came back out and then looked, and behold, a huge ball spot right here in the middle of my head. I wasn't very smart, but I was very innovative. innovative. So I get that double side tape put it on, and just sprinkled back the hair that I had cut off of my head. And I'm thinking, as long as I keep my head straight and my neck stiff, nobody's going to notice, right? So I get ready to go that morning, and my mom had fixed me up my favorite bowl of cereal, Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Amen in the house. Amen. Praise God. So excited, got my first scoop of cereal, and boom, all of my hair fell into my bowl, Of course, I am so shocked that there was a ball spot on my head. And I told my brother that he did it and not me and blamed it on him. Uh, But I say that story because I approached God the very same way. What do I need to do? How can I get myself better in shape for God to like me? How do I get in with God? I want it to be on the in with God and not on the out with God. 
So what did I do? I drove myself deep into religion, deep into church, just tried to find every Christian thing I could say and do. I wanted to dress like a good Christian, speak like a good Christian. I memorized the scriptures, sang songs, joined our worship team, all of this to try and get in with God. And it drove me into religion so much so that I was on a spiritual roller coaster for the many few years, many years of my teenage years. On the days that I felt like I did good, man, I was so proud. I walked high. On the days that I didn't do so good, I drowned in guilt. Because I was fighting this question of how do I get in with God? And maybe you've asked yourself that same question. Or maybe today that is the question on the front burner of your life. How do I get near God? How do I know God? How do I experience God? If that's your question, it's not just a personal question to you. It's actually a global question that the whole world has been asking. Today, there are 4,200 religions trying to answer that same question. Is it by the five pillars? Is it by the holy books? Is it by the festivals and sacrifices that we get in with God? And if you live just a mere religious life, when you take your last few breaths of life, you will ask yourself this question, have I done enough to get in with God? Have I crossed over that fine line between bad works and good works? And if I'm at least 1% over my bad works with my good works, I'm safe. But I don't know that until I reach the other side. If you aren't even religious and you don't believe in God, even an atheist in their last few moments of life will ask this question. I wonder if there is a God. And if there is, where do I stand with him? This is the question that Psalm 24 beckons us with. David in Psalm 24 asks the same looming question in these words. In verse 3, David says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? How do you get to God? How do you get to his holy place? For David and those who were reading, the mountain of the Lord and the holy place were actually literal places where God made himself known. You could see his presence. You could, you could feel the radiation of his power as God showed up on a mountaintop or in the holy place. But it was very exclusive who could be there with God. It was either Moses or the high priest once a year after having met all of these long lists of qualifications. Maybe they could be with God. So everybody else stood at a distance in great dread and fear, watching at a distance because if they got too close, they would be struck dead by the holiness of God. And so David echoes the question of the human heart. Is it even ever possible for us to stand before this great, powerful God? Psalm 24 is written in a very special moment in David's life and the life of this kingdom that we know as Israel. David has just taken hold of Jerusalem and made that the center of his kingdom. And he has made Jerusalem the center of religious life and faith. But the only problem is that the very centerpiece of their faith is missing. And that is the ark of God. See, the ark is a big deal because the ark of God is not just a representation or a symbol of God's presence. It was the meeting place between God and man. The ark was both the place of God's revelation and it was the hope of humanity's reconciliation. 
God would make himself known. He would speak from the ark. The Ten Commandments were stored in the ark. And then once a year on the mercy seat on top of the ark, the high priest would spill blood in hope for humanity's reconciliation with God. To stand next to the ark was to stand next to God. To be in the presence of the ark of God was to be in the very presence of God. So David has one goal. I've got to defeat the Philistines who have taken a hold of the ark of God and bring the presence of God, the ark of God, into Jerusalem. You see this journey of David in 2 Samuel chapter 6 in trying to retrieve and bring the ark of God back into Jerusalem. There is two attempts there recorded for us because the first one doesn't work out really well. In the first attempt of David to bring the ark of God back, he takes with him 30,000 young, strong, able men. It was an elite army that David took with him to get the ark of God. Thinking if I had enough muscles and enough strength, thinking that with enough of might and power in my army, I could get God's presence back into Jerusalem. The first thing David fails to realize is that you cannot get in with God by trusting in your human strength. You cannot approach God. You cannot win your way to God, impress God by trusting in your own abilities and resources, no matter how influential, pretty, strong, mighty you feel like you are, that is of no value in getting in with God. So David goes to get the ark with these 30,000 men, gets the ark and puts it on an oxen cart, pretty much a flatbed tied to an oxen. That's fine, except for the fact that God had very specifically prescribed a certain way that you were to transport the ark of God. It was supposed to be only carried on the shoulders of Levitical priests. That's how you carry the ark around. But David wanted a shortcut. He wanted to do what cost him less. He wanted to do what was convenient, but was a little bit less effort. He put it on the back of an oxen cart. The second thing David fails to realize is that you cannot get in with God by making your own terms, by massaging it, by compromising it. What works for me? What parts of God can I take and choose to follow? And what parts do I leave out? We cannot make God in our own image. We are made in his image. You cannot get in with God by your own terms. So David starts moving with the ark of God in the oxen cattle or the oxen cart. Just when everything seems to be going well, the oxen tips over. He stumbles. And the ark of God is about to fall over on the ground. That's not really good at all. That could be the most tragic thing. I mean, it's like worse than dropping a baby, right? I mean, just to drop the throne of God on the floor, not really good. Just when the ark is about to fall over, a good meaning man by the name of Uzzah. Steps into action. He's thinking, I've got to save the ark from falling. So he reaches and tries to save the ark of God from falling. You might think, well, way to go, Uzzah. You just saved the day. Good job. That's actually not what God was thinking. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, this is what it says about God's response to Uzzah trying to save the ark of God. Verse 7, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. What a tragic way to go. 
You can call God unjust, unfair, but if you were standing in that moment, you would have just witnessed an act of God defending his own holiness. Because the last thing in the story that you realize is that you cannot get in with God by counting on your own good intentions. You cannot get in with God because you meant well and you did good. You should and you can feed the homeless, feed the poor, end trafficking, end homelessness, be religious all of your life. But none of those things will matter when it comes to you getting in with God. Your religion, your piety, your works actually don't achieve that for you. So at this moment, the entire army is shaken to the core of what they've just witnessed. David, a king, is full of fear and anger at the same time. And David realizes in this moment, I am nowhere ready to have God in my house. I am nowhere ready to have this holy, powerful presence in my city. So David just abandons the ark and leaves it and goes back to Jerusalem. He leaves it in the house of a man named Obed-Edom, a Levite priest. And then three months go by and David gets word that Obed-Edom's entire household has been immensely blessed because of the ark of God in his house. Second Chronicles tells us that he had 62 sons and grandsons. That's a lot of kids. And in a patriarchal society, that's a huge deal. That's how you were measured in your success. So now David begins to reconsider. Hmm, Maybe I should do it the right way and get God into my house. Maybe I should pay the sacrifice and do whatever it takes because it's worth it at whatever cost to get back, get God into my house. So David goes back to Obed-Edom's house, picks up the ark, and he does two things very differently. Number one, he carries the ark on the shoulders of Levitical priests like he was supposed to. And they carry the ark all the way to Jerusalem. And the second thing that he does differently is so incredible. Every six steps they took with the ark, they would stop and offer a sacrifice of a bull and a calf. So two animals offered as a sacrifice for every six steps they took. Now that's a big deal because from Edom's house or to Obed's house in the Kindron Valley to Jerusalem is at least a three and a half mile walk. So imagine this, every six steps, one, two, three, four, five, six, they stop, get the sacrifice ready, offer two animals. Then again, pick up and go, one, two, three, four, five, six, offer sacrifices again. I would imagine multiple people carrying a huge object on their shoulder, every step is about a feet. And if you do a little math, three and a half miles, every six feet they stop, you know how many times they stopped? 3,080 times. That's a lot of pit stops. 3,080 times they stopped to offer two sacrifices. 6,160 animals offered in order to just get the ark of God into Jerusalem. They do this the entire way. And finally, they reach Jerusalem. And once they get to the gates of Jerusalem, there is a huge victory parade that's formed. Okay, I want you to imagine the next year the Texans win the Super Bowl. 
All right? I know you got to try really, really hard. Pray about it. Just imagine that the Texans have brought home the 52nd Super Bowl trophy into H-Town, Houston. There would be parades and cheers and chants all over the city. Everybody would be talking about the fact that we have defeated whoever that we don't care about anymore because we've won. That's kind of what it feels like in Jerusalem, except it's 100 times more. Greater and louder because this is the very presence of God coming into Jerusalem. So as they stand at the gates of Jerusalem, because every city was surrounded by gates to keep the bad guys out and to keep the invaders out. They begin to chant and sing about the ark. And what you have recorded in Psalm 24 is a very chant outside the gates of Jerusalem. As they've traveled a long way to get the ark of God into the city. So we're going to read this chant, and we're going to read it responsibly because, responsibly because that's what they did, all right? So I'm going to read the line in white, and I want you to read the lines in yellow, all right? Let's be a little participatory this morning, and I want you to read it. If you want to sing it, you can. If you've got to scream it out, you can. Do it like you just won the Super Bowl. All right, ready? Lift up your heads, you gates. And who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And who is he? Who is this king of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. All right, give yourselves a big hand. If we win, I'm coming to your house. We're going to cheer along. They make these chants for who knows how long. And finally, the city, the gates, city gates are opened and the ark enters the city. And here more sacrifices are offered. And here is where David danced before God in front of this ark. He doesn't just do a little cute little dance. He goes all in and he goes all out. This is the most passionate, radical, self-abandoning kind of dance. His dance is so crazy that his wife gets so mad at him. She says, you're acting like a crazy man, and you're supposed to be the king, and you're dancing like this? It says that she despised him in her heart because of the way he was worshiping God. Notice David's response. I would recommend not trying this at home, but notice what David says to Michael, his wife. In verse 21 of 2 Samuel 6, David said to Michael, it was, not before, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler of the Lord's people in Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. The worship that seemed radical to Michael was only reasonable to David. Because David knew that this God is the one who put him in charge. He gave him life. He redeemed him from being a shepherd's boy and made him king of Israel. David knew that he was so unworthy, but this king deserves my life. This is a spectacular moment because there was once upon a time when the chants and celebrations in Israel were about David. They chanted, Saul slayed a thousand, but David tens of thousands. But now in this moment when the true king, when God himself enters a city, David joyfully and willingly gets out of the way and puts God in the limelight. And he gives God a passionate, self-surrendering, self-abandoning kind of worship because he knew in whose presence he was standing. Getting in with God 
begins with a grand view of who God is. Coming to him in his presence begins with a grand view of who he is. That's why we sang this morning about who he is. Because we need to be reminded of who God is. The first verse of Psalm 24 begins like this. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and he established it on the waters. Everything in the world rightfully belongs to God. The very ground you walk on and the very breath you breathe has been given to you as a gift from God. He chose to be gracious and kind to you. That's why we are breathing in this moment. So the reason why the 30,000 men of David's army wasn't so impressive to God is because God owned everything anyway. The very strength they had, the very life they had was a gift of God. To come before God, to stand in view of God, is to be captivated, to be astounded by a wonder of who he is. By a sense of awe, an overwhelming sense of, wow, this is who God is. I was on a flight one time and sat next to a 10-year-old boy who was flying for the first time. So, of course, me, I sat down, got my headphones on, and just just waiting for time to go by wondering what's taking so long for us to get in the air. But this little boy had his hands clung to the windows the whole time. You had to see his eyes. They were exhilarating, full of expectation, full of the sense that he was about to experience something, be a part of something he had never had before. And the more we went on the runway, the louder he got and the bigger his eyes got. The more he talked, he was standing up and he clung to his mom's hand and said, Mom, do you see what I see? We're in the clouds A little bit later, he clung to my hand, a stranger. He said, sir, do you see what I'm seeing? I was like, yeah, just go to sleep. Um, (laughs) We were both part of the same event, but had an entirely different experience. He had a sense of wonder and awe about where he was and what he was a part of. I feel that a lot of times we lose that wonder before God because we've gotten used to it. Maybe we have a low view of God and a high view of ourselves. But when you stand before God, it is to be captivated by the wonder that he is God of the universe. When we pray, do we not pray like sometimes the God we're praying to isn't that important? That the other side of our prayers is just empty air. I, I say it all the time. Look, the greatest miracle to your prayer is not the answers to your prayer, but the fact that you can pray. The fact that you can come before God and offer your life to him, that's a big deal. That in itself is a miracle. When we sing, we must be mindful of who it is that we're singing to. Because coming before God begins with a grand view of who he is. It is in that context that David asked the question, how can you stand before him? How do you approach him? And he gives us an answer of what God requires of those who would come into his presence. Verse 4 says like this. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not trust in an idol or swear by what is false or a false God. So you can read that verse. And maybe you can think, great, that's the answer. That's the checklist of things I've got to do and achieve for me to stand before God. All I have to do is have clean hands, pure heart, no idols, and never tell a lie. I just got to be always right in my actions, pure in my motives, have nothing in my heart or in my life above God, and never tell even a white lie. If you're feeling pretty confident about you can do that on your own, I would be a little careful. 
Because I'm not feeling very confident about that. And actually, for hundreds and thousands of years, people tried to achieve that on their own, and they failed miserably. The Jews had 613 laws to protect them to have a clean hand and a pure heart. You know what Isaiah says about them? All your deeds, your righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. Romans 3.10 says that no one is righteous, not even one. Jesus looked at the Pharisees who did this really, really well. You know what he had to say? You guys are such hypocrites. Whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside, but dead on the inside. So this ought to create a sense of tension in our heart. We want to go before God. We want to stand in his presence. But there's nothing we can do to achieve what God requires. What is that tension? That tension is this. That a view of God, a grand view of God, immediately confronts us with our inability to achieve what God requires. A proper understanding of his holiness and his greatness creates in us, it confronts us with our insufficiency, inability to stand before God. I was on a plane another time and talking, I know you're thinking my only friends are the guys I meet on a plane, but that's not entirely (laughs) true. Uh, I was with a guy who went to South Asia and I asked him what he was there for. He said he went to a village to offer the hair of his one-year-old child to his community goddess to get right standing with God. And I looked into his eyes and I asked him, do you feel like that's worked? Has that done it for you? And he responded to me with such honest desperation and helplessness and said, I don't think so, but that's all I know to do. And we ought to feel that sense of helplessness when we come before God on our own. See, this is why David and his army and men stopped every six steps they took to offer a sacrifice. It was as if every six steps they took with the ark of God, with the presence of God, they were immediately reminded of their unworthiness and of God's holiness. They came to terms with the fact that they were so far from God, they were so sinful, but yet God was so holy. So every six steps for 3,000 times, they had to stop and offer a sacrifice because a sacrifice was their only plea for mercy. A sacrifice was their only plea for hope. This tension between God's unachievable standards and our helpless pursuit of achieving them is a good thing. It's actually a God thing. Romans says that God gave us the law so that we would realize how short we come to meeting God's law. Because it is only on the backdrop of our inability to meet God's standard that we realize our need for a Savior. On the backdrop of how short we come on our own, how holy He is, and how not holy we are, on the backdrop of our inability to meet God's standard, We realize our desperate need for a savior. The next verse in Psalm 24 says, even the purest in their heart, even those that are trying to do right, need God's vindication for them to have God as their savior. Even for the best of the best, their only hope for a blessing is for God to become a savior. So therefore, because of our inability to meet God's standards, God places himself at the cross-section of his holiness and our sinfulness. When we could never ascend the mountain of God, God himself descended into the mess of man. When we could not stand in his holiness, he came and stood in our brokenness. 
2,000 years ago, the story of Jesus is an amazing, loving God becoming one with us, of God becoming human, divine becoming flesh, the one who was the glory of eternity now becoming one with the story of humanity. And Jesus stepped into our shoes. He walked on our land. He carried the weight of our helplessness and of our sin on his shoulder. And Jesus lived his life with one goal, to reconcile man back to God, to make us one with him, to get us on the in with God because there was no way for us to achieve that on our own. Jewish rabbinical tradition tells us that Psalm 24 is the very psalm that was read on the first day of the week in Palestine, in the temple, which is our Sunday, their Saturday. Every Sunday, our Sunday, they would read Psalm 24 as their worship song to God. So I want you to imagine this moment on Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus entered in on a donkey into the gates of Jerusalem as king. This was the liturgy, the worship within the temple. So outside in Jerusalem, an amazing parade, a victory parade has now formed. Inside of the temple, the priests are asking this question, who can stand before God? Outside of the temple, the citizens of Jerusalem are chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Who can stand? The question is not so much about who can stand, but about who can save. There is no standing without saving. In the temple, the question is about who is this king of glory? Outside, the citizens of Jerusalem who hear the chant of Hosanna ask each other, who is he? Who is Hosanna? And in Matthew 21, 11, we get the, we get the answer. He is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Who is the king of glory? Jesus. Inside the temple, the priests are praying and singing, open up the gates so that the king of glory may come in while on the outside, the gates of Jerusalem are literally being lifted up as Jesus, the king of kings, enters. Not the ark of God, but God himself. Jesus did not just march on a donkey through Jerusalem. He walked through Jerusalem carrying a cross. And he went to a place called Golgotha, the most outside forsaken place in the city. And there, the sinless king of glory, the most perfect holy God that people stood in dread of, hung on a hill. And he became sin so that you and I could become right with God. He was forsaken so that you could be accepted. Jesus received the fullness of God's wrath for us and he stood in our place so that we could stand in his place. He stood in the abyss of sin, darkness, and judgment so that we could stand in the presence of holiness in front of God on account not of human strength or on our will or terms, but on account of Jesus alone. And there the veil tore the mountain of God became incredibly accessible. The holy place of God was open for whoever would call on his name. And Hebrews says about what happened that day. In Hebrews 10, he says it like this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, and this is what you have today. If you are in Christ, you have great 
confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, not by your works, not by your pedigree, not by your piety, but by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain. That is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. How do you become cleansed? How do you become a person with a clean heart and a pure hand? You get washed in the blood of Jesus. Colossians 1 says that Jesus, because of his death and resurrection, presented you as holy and without blemish before God. Jesus resolved the tension that humanity has been fighting for and fighting with Because getting in with God is not what you achieve. It is what you receive. Becoming one with God, getting into his presence, being in his holiness is not what you could ever achieve by your works or doing or prayers. It is simply all you can receive as a gift of grace. You can't achieve it. And if you're trying to achieve it, you're going to get so burnt out just like I was. But if you receive what you could never achieve, you'll see God at the centerpiece of your saving story. And I said to the guy on that plane, look, if you ever feel insufficient about what you could do for God, know that a sufficient sacrifice has been paid for you. And all you have to do is receive it. The gates of Jerusalem opened wide for Jesus to come in. And church history tells us that the early church sang this psalm to talk about the gates of heaven opening wide to receive Jesus as King of Kings when he entered heaven after the resurrection. So today the question isn't about the gates of Jerusalem being opened or the gates of heaven. The real question at hand is about the gates of your heart. Are they open or shut for what God wants to do in saving you, in changing you? Are the doors of your heart today flung wide open for King Jesus? Or are they shut because of pride or self-reliance and human strength and what we want to do and our own agenda? Today, can I encourage you that if this King comes into your life, he'll do two things. One, he'll cleanse you immediately and he'll change you daily. He cleanses you with his blood and he gives you a clean heart and a pure heart. And he changes you as you now stand before him in his holiness. Because changing of the heart doesn't come without standing before Jesus. 2 Corinthians says that as we reflect the Lord's glory with unveiled faces, we are being changed with ever-increasing glory into his image and into his likeness. So today, my invitation is would you stand before this King of Kings? and be cleansed and be changed forever. Would you pray with me? Today, God, we want every gate in our heart and in our soul, in our family, in our personal lives to be flung wide open because you are worthy, King Jesus. When you come, you fight our battles. You win the victories we could not win. You break chains. You set free those that are in addiction, in bondage. You do something spectacular that we could have never achieved but only received by the goodness and the grace and the power of Jesus. So today we stand before you. We kneel in our heart before you. 
knowing that without you, we are helpless. We are confronted with our inabilities. But today, may we realize the beauty and the wonder of a Savior and the strength of our Creator God. We come to you, King Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.